the switch that I had for when I started drinking um, and able to shut it off um, was gone. There was just no control over how much I drank. Right. Welcome to the Recovery Edge Cast, Episode 8. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. Thanks for joining us. Today I'm sitting with Stephen, who I met at Thirst Quenchers in Frederick Tuesday nights. Uh, Stephen has 103 days today. How you doing, Stephen? Good. How about yourself? Hey, I'm hanging in there, man. Um, thanks for sitting down with me on such short notice, even. Yeah, of course. Um, so why don't you give us a background of uh, what are what are you doing today? You know, what are what's life like today for you? Sure. Um, so uh, my sobriety date's of May twenty second of twenty twenty. Um, and like you mentioned, we uh, were chatting last night um, at the Tuesday Thirst Quenchers in Frederick. That's my home group. Um, so a little bit about me. I'm, uh, <clears throat> I've been in this area uh, in Decono, kind of the north part of Denver for a couple years now. I uh, moved from Broomfield um, and I'm married. Uh, I've got a one and a two-year-old. And then um, I've got some bonus kids, uh, an 11 and a 12-year-old as well. Um, they keep me pretty busy. Um, I like that, I'm, bonus kids. <laughs> yeah, I don't like stepkids. I prefer bonus kids. They're they're mine, mm -hmm. uh, same That's as awesome. my other ones. So, yeah. Um, and uh, I like to, uh, like on my free time, um, I used to do a lot of snowboarding. I haven't done it so much recently, especially with little ones. I've been pretty busy on the weekends and stuff, but uh, like like working on cars and um, I've recently got into woodworking. That's been pretty interesting. So Nice, nice. Um, how yep. did you get into woodworking? <laughs> um, everything I wanted to buy was too expensive <laughs> and didn't fit what I was um, trying to put it. So... Um, <clears throat> You know, you can find anything on YouTube now. So there's been a couple projects that uh, um, I wanted to build, like a some decking in my backyard and um, some platforms for a washer and dryer in the house and stuff. So I've uh, really gotten interested in that and um, got uh, upgraded some of my tools and stuff. And that's been a pretty cool process. Um, but it's a uh, one of those things that, you know, uh, once you get started, you can kind of go down a rabbit hole and I didn't really quite understand how much I don't know about it. So, um, but yeah, it's been keeping me busy recently. So it's been pretty cool. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I hear you on that. Get, get into a hobby or something and then you really don't know everything or basically how expensive is this going to be? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Pueblo. I was born in Colorado Springs, um, but I grew up in in Pueblo. Um, when I was really young, before school started, uh, my dad's work um, brought us traveling a lot. So I've lived in uh, Tucson, Arizona, Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, and a couple other places. But once I came to an age of around kindergarten and starting school, we... Uh, moved back to Pueblo, um, both of my uh, maternal and paternal grandparents lived there. 
so I, I grew up there. I went to high school there. And then um, once I graduated from high school, I, I moved to um, the Denver area. I went to uh, University of Colorado Boulder. Well, good. Um, so 103 days. How you feel? Uh, I'm feeling um, pretty good. A lot better now. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the sayings that I hear in the rooms... Um, I'm not, I wasn't really the biggest fan of them for a long time that, yeah. you know, this too shall pass and, um, time takes time. But a lot of the stuff is that is so true. Uh, there's really no substitute for kind of just taking it one day at a time. And, um, there's you know, just, doing the, Oh, I was going to say, there's just no cheating time. No, in absolutely not. Yeah. And that's a tough one too, because, I couldn't remember how I felt, you know, in the beginning. And um, that's another thing, too, is that even with the relatively short amount of time I have, it's like my brain can shut off how bad things were very easily. Um, and I can kind of forget that uh, or allow myself to if, if I attach to those thoughts and, and kind of follow that, you know. Um, I heard someone in, the, in a meeting say that their memory is like a bunny's tail, short and fuzzy, and I can definitely relate to that. That's awesome. <laughs> I never heard of that one. It's a great analogy, though. I'm going to have to steal it. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> um, okay. I think you're warmed up, at least uh, vocally. Um, sure. Why don't you tell us what it was like what happened and what it's like today it's all yours um so i had a pretty good pretty good childhood um my parents really didn't drink they uh they would go out and and do things when i was younger um but at some point they they just stopped drinking altogether and and going out um they they were you know my parents weren't divorced they stayed together um, I did pretty well, uh, actually very well in school. Um, you know, not, nothing major or, or big in my childhood. It was a pretty normal, um, upbringing. Parents were both, um, active in everything that I did in sports and, um, in my schooling and very supportive. And, um, I never really, um, did anything bad or got in trouble and, never really partied or, um, did anything specifically in high school. Um, but I, I do remember the first time that I drank and we were, as uh, after a football game for high school, um, I was probably, a, I was a senior and some friends had, um, some Smirnoff vodka and Mountain Dew code red. I'll, I'll never forget that combination of the two. And, uh, <clears throat> I remember drinking and the feeling that I got from it was immediately, I've always been a pretty introverted, shy kind of person. Um, so I'm not super outgoing or um, don't really like to be a lot around a lot of people. I'm kind of to myself and kind of prefer to stick to more of a homebody. Um, mm -hmm. And that first time drinking, I just remember the feeling that I got just that, that rush, that heat wave go through my body. And just remember thinking, man, I really do fit in. I am funny. And, and just the feelings that I got 
from drinking and I was definitely um, uh, attached from when I first started. Um, no, it never really became a problem and, you know, it wasn't, was never a priority. Um, but I noticed, you know, I've gone back and part of the step work I'm doing with my sponsor, um, I had to put together, a, among a, a lot of other work, I had to put together a drunk log and I, uh, I noticed the progression through more and more. I relied on it as a social crutch, um, as I got older. So when I went to college, um, you know, if there was any social event or anything that we were doing, alcohol was definitely involved for me. Um, and it started to switch from if I'm out with people and doing things, you know, drinking to this is my ritual and my preparation for situations before. So it started to become a crutch. Um, but through, even through college, it never became a problem. There was never any, um, major incidents or never got a DUI or, um, never got arrested or anything, anything major, um, at that point. But after I graduated, um, and, entered into the workforce, um, started to drink more and more. And, um, I, I noticed that it switched into kind of like, um, uh, isolation where it was something that, you know, I would just sit at my house and, and at a certain time it was happy hour at home and I would start drinking and started to rely on it more and more. And it just became a part of <clears throat> what I was doing. Now there was times that I would get sobriety and, um, go for um, periods of time without drinking, extended periods of time. Um, it hadn't really taken over what I was doing at that point in my 20s and um, wasn't really, again, I had no, nothing major, no health problems or um, police or anything like that. And then towards the end of my um, my late 20s, I I met um, my now wife and um, I had just got, uh, I made a career change, a, a pretty big career change. It was a pretty substantial jump for me career-wise. I moved to a new company, um, a small startup in, in Boulder. And uh, instead of being at home and sitting at home and working with a remote team, um, my job now was... Uh, um, managing people and, and being in, in an office. So um, I had made a, a change to, I'm going to start eating healthier. And um, I had already known that there was a problem the way I was drinking because I was drinking pretty regularly, um, maybe not every day, but pretty consistently through the week and almost always on weekends because, you know, anything social I was doing. Yeah. Um, here's a question before we go further. Sure. Um, yeah. Why do why do you think that you started drinking at home more? That's a good question. Um, I think is it started to become move from a social crutch to you know being around people and using that to to you know tell myself I'm the life of the party or fit in or whatever it was to um, probably the way I drank. I, I just I did it for the effect and I and I wanted to drink the way I wanted to drink without being bothered. Um, so it, it, you know, it turned from, um, 
being with other people to isolation. Uh, and that's kind of right where that, that phase was, um, when I met my wife, uh, and, you know, when I met her, um, I had, like I said, just made that big change for work and had actually stopped drinking for a while, um, was able to thought, uh, I was drinking pretty regularly. So I didn't know if I, um, was going to get any, any withdrawal symptoms or anything, but I wasn't drinking a lot and I wasn't drinking every day. So, uh, it was a pretty big change. I, I lost a lot of weight. People noticed it and, um, I felt really good. And, um, at some point, you know, alcohol just kind of circled back around and became something that, you know, I did on the weekend, whereas when I had stopped and said that, I, you know, well, I was able to do it, so I guess I can drink again now. Um, mm. And I, this is kind of coincides right about the time I met my wife and um, we started drinking together. That was something that we did and it, it made it, it was like a social lubricant. It was easier for me to talk to her and um, do certain things we were doing. She had friends that, that went out a lot. So it just kind of went hand in hand. And um, it, it got to the point where we started drinking um, every day together at, a, you know, I'm, uh, I have OCD tendencies. So like a lot of things have to be organized and patterned and, and set for me. So like right at a certain time, it'd be like uh, every day I'd tell my wife, you know, or she wasn't my wife at the time, but um, I'd tell her, you know, you ready, you ready to have one? And then they'd, I'd, I'd, I'd had to do them out of shot glasses, like to know the amount I was drinking. So there's still some control over it. Mm. Um, and, you know, th- this went on for quite a while. Um, and then at some point, um, probably, let's see, what year is it, 2020? So, um, in 2016, January of 2016, um, something changed. The, the, the switch that I had for when I started drinking, um, and able to shut it off, um, was gone. There was just no control over how much I drank. Um, and I had, I had had, I had drank normally when I was younger and then it started to turn into a problem drinking, um, at some point it turned into functioning, functioning alcoholic, um, but I, I still had control over it. And then, like I said, right around that time period, um, that was completely gone and I had no control. Once I started, all bets were off. I started day drinking, drinking, you know, the next morning because, uh, I was, you know, I'd wake up either really hungover or withdrawing or intoxicated and, and it just went, you know, um, that progression was really, really, uh, happened really fast. And that was, I I know the time period because that was right around the, uh, right before we had, um, our bachelor and bachelorette party before we got married, we went out to Vegas and that just turned into a complete shit show. Um, you know, cause again, I, I couldn't control my drinking. So, um, my wife was able to, she, she was drinking right, right side along with me. Um, but she had voice concerned about stopping and, and she was able to stop. Um, so even though she drank pretty hard with me, it was different for her. She could, uh, 
she could always control it and, and then was able to stop. And about that time period, um, things got really bad and I continued drinking and losing control. And, um, you know, I, I noticed two things about myself. Um, I couldn't control how much I drank when I started drinking. And when I didn't want to drink, I wasn't able to stay to stay stopped drinking. Uh, I always came back to alcohol. Um, so th- that went on uh, uh, for maybe a year or so. And um, as you can imagine, it just it kind of everything spiraled out of control. That's really when my life became unmanageable and um, things really just started to take a turn for the worst. I started. So, um, did anybody notice before you that you couldn't control your drinking? Yeah, my wife and people around me. We we had kind of isolated ourselves already because we were drinking so regularly that we kind of shut everyone else out and did it in our in our home alone. Um, but she noticed very quickly, you know, that that loss of control for for me because it started with blackouts and and other things. Reflecting back and going through a junk log for myself. Now I can see these things happening, but at the time I didn't know what was happening. You know, um, in my mind, um, I, you know, I, I was telling myself, well, Smirnoff probably put out a bad batch. That's why this is happening. You Mm -hmm. know, it was never equated to, um, something progressing with my, with my illness. Right. So, um, this went on for a while and things got pretty bad. Um, I had a, a property in Westminster that um, w- I was using as a rental, and we were looking to move uh, from Boomfield. So I put that house up for sale um, so we could take the equity out of it and use it to, uh, to buy something new um, for our, uh, our family. And I had went off, this started in these, being not being able to control drinking turned into these binges for me that would last anywhere from a couple days to up to a week or two where it was just straight drinking if I was conscious and um, mostly ended in, you know, really bad withdrawal and sometimes ending up and I started to notice, uh, I started to see myself ending up in hospitals um, and stuff like that. Um, the property that I put up for sale had, um, I had a buyer for it and I had taken off on a, on a bender and, uh, my wife, you know, wouldn't allow me to drink like I wanted to. And so I would just take off to places Well, I ended up going back to this property and a night of drinking turned into a couple of days and, and it came to the day of closing and, the morning of the final walkthrough for the client, um, the realtor and, and her client who were purchasing the house, they found me upstairs, passed out, incoherent, in, in one of the you know the spare bedrooms. Just I didn't know what day it was, what was going on, and <clears throat> um, so the you know the the realtor representing the other person called my realtor and was like, "Dude, your your client's here, and I don't we don't know if he's on drugs or what's going on, but he's completely out of it." Wow. So my realtor, I, I don't really remember what happened, but I remember yeah. bits and pieces of it. It's like those Vietnam flashbacks. Yeah. So my realtor came and picked me up and, <clears throat> you know, he didn't know what to do. So he called 
um, someone he had sold a house to that he do was in, in the program and had been sober for, um, about a decade. Uh, so he called this guy, the guy told him, well, you know, how bad is he? How long has he been drinking? And, and, you know, no one really knew, um, just that I was completely out of it. So he suggested that they take me to, um, a detox and you know, he, he ended up taking me to a place to detox. Um, and then he contacted me, uh, after he had left me a voicemail and said that, you know, I've got a friend, um, he wants to talk with you if you're interested. He knows a lot about alcoholism. Whenever you get out, give me a ring. I hope you're doing well. At this point, were you ready to admit you were an alcoholic? No. So how did all this feel? Did you get, did you get pissed? Yeah. Well, I didn't realize I had a problem yet. I mean, I knew I had a problem, but I didn't want to admit it and realize how bad it was. I just wanted to be able to, you know, to drink normally at that point. It was, I didn't like the things that were happening when I drank, but I was still at this point telling myself that, you know, there's a one in chin, ten, a one in chin, uh, 10 chance that you won't take off on a bender. So I was telling myself, you know, you still got a chance, buddy. Um, and I just wanted to drink like a normal person. So I didn't want to stop drinking. I didn't want to admit I had a problem. And, you know, if you had my life, you would drink the way I drink too, kind of situation. Um, so he had given me this guy's information. Um, I, once I got out, you know, my wife was pretty pissed and, I told I, you know, I was to appease her. I told her I would give this guy a call and see what it's all about. Um, I ended up meeting with him at a, at a library and he kind of asked me about my history and, um, things that were going on and how, how I got to where I was. And then he, he pulled out his big book and was kind of showing me line, you know, sections throughout the big book and was like, you know, here's some signs that you, you know, of a, some depictions of some different types of alcoholics. And then he mentioned, you know, the two signs about uh, not being able to control how much I drink when I drink and not being able to stop. Um, So I, 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 you know, at that point I, I was more aware that there was something going on, but I I didn't want to admit it and I didn't want to take accountability for it or responsibility. It was more of, I just want to be able to drink like I used to and have people stop bothering me and uh, taking me to hospitals and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, he was, he was like, well, I go to a meeting. uh, I forget what day of the week it was, but I go to a meeting every, um, every day of the day of the week it was. And it's like, do you want to join me? And I was like, sure. So um, that was my first introduction to the program. And, and AA um, immediately meeting with someone and and kind of getting familiar with it. And when I first started uh, going into the rooms and being introduced to it, um, it wasn't really for myself. I didn't want to stop. Um, It was just to get everyone off my back and to stop bugging me about it. So I I always had, in the beginning at least, you know, that back pocket of, um, 
I'm not going to quit drinking or, you know, if this happens or if I can get away with it or if I could drink normal, that's what I would do. So uh, I started going to the rooms and, you know, I'd raise my hand and say, I'm Steven, I'm an alcoholic. Um, but it probably wasn't until, um, you know, almost two years later, uh, well, about a year later, actually, you know, listening to people, um, finding finding a sponsor and, and doing the step work that what it meant to me uh, to raise my hand and call myself an alcoholic. So um, you were going to AA for a year already? Well, not in... I. It had been about a year since the first time I was introduced to AA. Ah, so I, I went to a couple of meetings to make my wife happy and yeah, then just did my it. own thing. Yeah. So it wasn't until more recently until I've become serious about the program. And mm-hmm. and since I've got the stretcher period I have now, um, uh, prior to that, I, I had um, about eight months before I relapsed uh, to where I have the time I have now. So in the last year or so is when I've actually started going to meetings, taking them serious and um, actually trying to to work a program um, and to understand when I raise my hand, you know, and say I'm an alcoholic, that that means I um, it's a lot of people mention it's a twofold problem. For me, it's a threefold problem. I have um, a physical allergy that when I put alcohol into my body, um, the phenomenon of craving starts. And uh, an analogy that I like with that is, you know, if if you're allergic to peanuts and you eat something um, with nuts in it, no amount of willpower that you have throw at your throat from not swelling is going to stop it from swelling. And that's the same way that willpower works for me and it makes sense to me with that physical allergy. No amount of willpower I throw at it is going to stop that phenomenon of craving. Um, so that's the first part of uh, the problem. The second part is I have a mental obsession that brings me back to alcohol in the first place. And then the process starts over again. Um, and that's something that I, I can't take care of or remove for myself. Something my wife can't take care of or, or remove for me. And something that having kids and saying, oh, I've got a, you know two little girls doesn't take away and be removed from me. It has to be from a higher power uh, and for myself that the higher power is God that, that can do that for me. And then the third one that I like to, that makes sense to me and is relevant to me is I've got a spiritual melody. That's why I have that obsession that takes me back to the first drink in the first place. And I can't correct all that by myself. I need some, something else to help me with that. Um, and that's kind of gotten me where I am today um, and knowing that this stuff does work because I did a lot of relapsing and, and that was because I never worked a program. I never did anything going to meetings and, um, you know, saying stuff, saying cool anecdotes that you heard from other people and and talking mm-hmm. in meetings and then walking out the door and going right back to Stevens will isn't working a program. And I did that for a long time. Um, I when I first yeah. started in the rooms, go ahead. Oh no, I was just uh, kind of imagining the the process you're going through here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, going 
to meetings and then coming home and just kind of being on the sidelines of AA and not really working a program, but just watching other people. Yeah, exactly. I thought I was working in AA program and I, you know, I really didn't put any effort into it and I wasn't, I wasn't praying every morning. I wasn't asking for God's will. I wasn't doing these simple things in, in all my life's affairs that, that are required for this to be successful, you know? Um, yeah. I've heard of it as stuff like a three-legged stool and, and um, you know, those, those three legs, if you don't have the three legs on the stool, then it's, um, you know, there's no foundation or balance in it. And that's service and helping others and, you know, doing all the work that you're required to do all together. Um, mm. And when I, when I really started doing that stuff, I noticed, you know, vast improvements pretty quickly. Um, one of the things I heard in, in early meetings was um, you can make your higher power anything. And I heard a lot of, um, a lot of things about, you know, uh, the, the doorknob can be your higher power or a chair. Um, a lot of people use more relevant things like the group and other stuff. Um, and that didn't, that didn't make sense to me. It was more, uh, more of said for like, like the entertainment value of it. But the real, the real thing to take away from that um, for myself and my experience was there is a God and it's not me. So however you want to mm. say it, that's what's, that's what I could relate to. Um, I had to stop playing God and mm-hmm. taking control of things. And once I did that and started doing my best to um, live in today and doing the things, you know, the, the practices that I do today um, to where I'm at, it's it's really hard to believe that you know i i didn't go a day without drinking um and when i started drinking i had no control over it and just those intense cravings and feelings to where i am right now like 103 days in and that obsession is is not there is that's a miracle alone Mm. like you know i don't have to go anywhere to see a miracle that's a miracle right there um i don't need any further proof than that so how did you get 103 days then if you could, you know, like if somebody asked, if the group asked you this in the meeting, you know, how did you get 103 days? How would you answer that? Um, you know, the main thing is, is suiting up and showing up. So I, I'm living what I'm saying in, in the meetings. I, I got a sponsor. Um, I'm doing the work and going to meetings it's a little bit different right now. So, um, you know, we're recording this in, uh, the beginning of September and of 2020 and, and, uh, you know, it's been crazy with, with COVID going around meetings got shut down. They were zoom meetings. So life is different now and we've had to come accustomed to that, but are you doing any zoom meetings? I am. I'm doing zoom meetings. I'm doing in-person meetings. Um, I call my sponsor every day. Um, I'm trying to stay as busy and as active as I can. Uh, you know, we talked about it in, in, in the meeting that you and I attended last night. It's, it's the idea of helping others for me is it gets me out of my head. Um, 
and I don't have to think about my problems and myself nonstop. I can help someone and remove myself from that. And it, and it just helps alleviate all of that. So, um, you know, the main thing that I'm doing is just doing the work, really doing the work. Cause I didn't even, you know, at the beginning, I didn't even know what the work was. You know, I, I would read pages 84 through 87 and think that I was doing a 10 and 11 because I read those pages. Well, that's not true. I, I have to live right. those things. You know, the, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is hit my knees. Now you don't, have to do that to, you know to pray um but for me my process is i i you know it's the gesture of doing mm -hmm. it for me is important so i immediately i immediately uh the first thing when i wake up is pray i do my uh routine of prayer and meditation and that you know that's another thing i, I grew up um from both sides of my family that were both strict catholic um I've got an uncle who who's a pastor on my mom's side and mm. a nun on my dad's side. And, you know, there it was um, Sunday was church. You know, uh, I'm confirmed. We were always involved with church things. It, you know, that's that's how I grew up. And in my view growing up, because there's a difference between being Catholic and Christian. And if you're you know, you're Catholic, it's a lot more strict and things are different. Um I grew up with a finger point, a finger pointing, judging God. Um, and that was hard for me to shake to a loving God, making that transition from my childhood and how I was raised um, to where I'm at now. And there was a lot of step work that was involved in listening, working with my sponsor, where he was having me write down, um, what's your conception of, you know, what's God considered to you? And then writing down, if you could make God anything, what would you have God be? That seemed like uh, really bad. Like I was mm -hmm. like, I can't write what I want God to be. That that doesn't, mm -hmm. you know, it felt like a wrong thing to do. Um, so, you know, there was there was some a lot of process and, and work involved. Uh, but it was great. And it, and it helped get me to see things a little bit differently, to know that you know, God wants the best for me and, you know, all people are God's children. And a lot of those things were foreign concepts to me. It, it um, like I mentioned, it just didn't feel right. It felt like I was doing something wrong, believing and thinking those things. So it was, a, it was definitely a change well, for me. It sounds like it was change that helped you stay sober this time around. If you could go yeah. back and give yourself advice what would you tell yourself? What kind of advice would you give yourself? You know, in those days when you were really struggling and really just going through the motions, but not working a program. Yeah. If I would go back and tell myself from the very beginning, you know, we can't go back in time. We can't change, you know, what we've done. But if I could give someone who's new in the program and starting advice that I, you know, wish I would have taken myself, there's a, there's a, there's a paragraph in how it works um, that mentions you know, we beg of you with all the earnestness at our command to be thorough and willing from the very start. That would be my advice. Um, I read that now, and I like to think of the hundred people who wrote that book in front of me. I envision them in front of me telling me that. And then it gives it gives me courage to, you know, move forward and do what I'm doing. Because it's true, half measures of ill does nothing. If I'm doing half the work and 
half-assing stuff, um, it doesn't work. And and resting on your laurels, you know, laurels are things you've done yesterday. Um, And I had a buddy in the program tell me that laurels are something that you place up on your head. So if you're resting on them, your head's up your ass, you know that you're resting on them. So I try to remember things like that, that, you know, my past accomplishments, what I did yesterday isn't going to keep me sober today. Um, and I've got to stay in today every day. And so that would, that would be my biggest advice. Um, and you know, the, the same buddy who told me about resting on our laurels, um, he, you know, I went, we went through the book together and he told me some really important things that, that have stuck with me. And another one was, you know, it says these steps are a suggested program of action. And he, you know, he reminded me as we were reading that, that the steps are suggested for us the same way it's suggested you pull your parachute when you skydive. So, <laughs> you know, the terms yeah. may be soft in the book, but these are very, this is life and death, ma- life and death matters. Um, yep. If I don't do what I need to do, I will die the way I drink. I have no doubt about that now. And I never believed that before that I would die or it was, you know, that serious of a problem in, in the book, it mentions grave matters and stuff like that. And and every time we'd read through, you know, one, one of my first sponsors would tell me that means you, you die, Stephen. that means you die grave. And uh, I'll, I'll always remember those things now. So, you know, my main advice would be keep coming to meetings. There's a reason um, meeting makers make it is a saying, because once you stop going to meetings, you stop doing the program, you stop remembering what it's like, you start resting on your laurels. Um, So, you know, my advice would be go to meetings, find a sponsor. Um, You know, there's a lot of uh, when I first was looking for, uh, you know, the, the person that my realtor introduced me to ended up being my sponsor. So it was a pretty quick path for me. Um, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So I didn't have to go to rooms and find someone that I liked and, you know, but my only advice would, uh, regarding finding a sponsor would be is, um, as more and more meetings open up, uh, with COVID, you know, things changing and policies about being around people and stuff are starting to change and somewhat return to normal. Yeah. Um, go to a lot of different places. I've had a ton of different experiences at different meetings. So if you go to one meeting at a certain time and you don't like it, you know, there's probably another time at that clubhouse um, and another group and you got to try different places. So um, find someone that, you know, you can tell when someone's, uh, just talking to hear themselves talk and show how impressive they are with the amount of time they have. Um, but if you find someone who, you know, really resonates with you and, and their message makes sense and then, you know, ask them to be your sponsor, just go up and ask them. Um, this isn't someone that you're going to get married to. If it doesn't work out, you can always change that. Now you shouldn't go around and ask a bunch of people to be sponsors and, and be picky about it, but it's not a permanent thing. This is about your life and saving your life. So find someone you like and get a sponsor and be willing to do, um, you know, what they say they do. Uh, and the, you know, the best sponsors I've had always go back to the big book as their foundation. Um, one of the, the same guy who I started working with, who told me all this stuff was, he called it the bullshit sifter. And if I would ask him a question, I'd ask him something about, you know, um, 
when we first started working together, he's like, I'm not your ATM and I'm not your marriage counselor. But if you have any other any problems or anything you need to bring to me, we'll take it to the bullshit sifter and, and work it out. And he always brought it back to their principles in the big book. Um, and I thought that that was amazing that he could do that. Well, we're nearing the end. I'm really glad you got to sit down and share your story with us today, Stephen. Yeah, absolutely. I, I could never understand that people say that, you know, their their greatest uh, one of their greatest assets is is their past. And because I was so ashamed of what I had done and how I had treated people and how I had acted and to now be on the other side of it and to know that what I've gone through can help relate to someone who I can help in the same situation I was in. Absolutely. It's, it's the greatest asset. And when I first started going to meetings, I'd hear people say, I'm a grateful alcoholic. And I would always be like, what the hell is this person talking about? This is the last place on earth I'd be if I could. I know who Um, you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. But now I can understand why someone would say that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, We, we, we live life on another level that a lot of people don't know about. And it's amazing. It's so cool to be a part of. Thanks for taking time to chat with me. I appreciate it. Any final words for our listeners? Uh, No, just keep coming back and, and um, be honest, open-minded and willing. That's the three key ingredients right there. Thank you, Stephen, for sharing your experience, strength and hope with us. And thank you listeners for checking us out today. Don't forget that you can find the recovery Edgecast on Spotify, iTunes, and recoveryedgecast.com. We'll see you next time.